Welcome to Theology with Dr. A.M. Hackney. This podcast is focused on the vocational calling of Christians to be theologians. You'll find episodes on systematic theology, spiritual formation, scriptural interpretation, and ethics. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Hackney. In today's episode, I'm exploring a theology of rest and how the practice of rest points to the gracious work of God in Christ in which Christians are invited to participate and which testifies to the heavenly reality of how and why God is at work in the world. We live in a culture of busyness, a culture to which Christians are not immune. Sometimes this busyness is constructed by the program-oriented ministries of the church, with families having some sort of church activity and obligation, kids' club, Bible study, worship practice, not to mention Sunday worship itself, three or more days a week. Sometimes this busyness is constructed by life outside of the church, and very often families are too busy with work, extracurricular activities, and family obligations to participate in even just one of the activities in the life of the church. This is especially true of Sunday morning worship, which is competing with Sunday morning soccer practices in the summer and Sunday morning hockey games in the winter. How does rest fit into this life of busyness? More specifically, why do we practice rest? Often, the primary answer is the pragmatic answer, because it is good for us. Rest is framed within an individualistic context in most popular-level books on Christian living. Though couched in scripture proof texts, the thesis is still the same. Practicing rest is good for me, therefore I will rest. And of course, there are plenty of resources for Christians on how to practice rest, with suggestions and strategies for even the busiest of people. But what if, in trying to address the necessities of practicing rest, and in exploring the reason why we rest, the theological answer is not framed around us and how it benefits us, but around God and how rest is His work into which He invites us to participate. To consider this, we'll do several things in this episode. First, I want to look at two theological terms, ordinance and sacrament. From there, we'll look at some examples of how rest was practiced throughout history, and then we'll turn to a survey of biblical passages that talk about rest, both in the Old and New Testaments. My thesis is this, rest is first and foremost a work of God, one that He did first and that we now participate in. As such, rest is more than a commandment or an ordinance to follow. Instead, it is also sacramental. The practice of rest is an outward sign of inward grace that points us not only to our present rest that we find in Christ, but also forward to the future rest that is promised in the resurrection. It is the tension between the present reality of rest and the eschatological one, between the now and the not yet, that Christians testify to, participate in, and give thanks for in their regular practice of rest. Rest is a practice that pulls back the curtain of the heavens and reveals the reality of how and why God is at work in the world. In the evangelical tradition, there have been two main ways of understanding the practices or instructions given by God to the church, sacrament and ordinance. Though originally meant to convey the mystery of God's action, by the Middle Ages, the physical sacraments— the bread and the wine, the act of baptism, began to be seen as the cause of grace rather than the sign of grace. 
This led Protestants in the Reformation age, especially those in the Anabaptist and Puritan traditions, to shun the language of sacrament in favor of the language of ordinance, which meant simply a practice which Christ ordained. With the shift to the language of ordinance, there was also a shift in understanding the action behind the work. Thus, in the sacramental framework, the action was primarily God's work, while in the framework of ordinance, the action was primarily a human work. The Lord's Supper, for example, then became not so much about Christ nourishing and being present with his people at the table or in the elements, but more about Christians memorializing Christ's past action of his death on the cross because they had been commanded to do it. If rest is seen solely as an ordinance, rather than also sacramentally, it becomes possible that legalism begins to dictate how rest must be done. This seems to have been the problem with the Pharisees in the Gospel narratives. They were so focused on keeping God's law that they had created layers upon layers of rules of what exactly could and could not be done on the Sabbath, rules that were not originally part of God's institution of the practice of Sabbath in the Old Testament. In the early church, there was a distinct attempt to separate the Christian practice of rest from the Jewish practice of Sabbath. Justin Martyr and Origen, for example, warned against the danger of enforcing a day of rest. For as Craig Blomberg notes, they viewed it as a danger to the gospel of salvation and spiritual living by grace through faith alone. In AD 363, the Council of Laodicea outlined the expectations of Christians and the observance of Sabbath. Even when declaring that Christians should observe the Lord's Day, it was not deemed necessary for them to rest on the Lord's Day. Instead, the council offered instructions focusing on which day, Saturday or Sunday, should be set aside for worship, but stated that even as rest is suggested for Sunday, it is only for those who are able to do so. As early as AD 306, there began to be instructions about how exactly Christian rest was to be practiced. The Synod of Elvira in Spain drafted specific prohibitions with regards to the day of rest, which were classified under five different categories. Thus, as Paul Jewett summarizes, they were the laws forbidding all work on the land, the prohibition of judicial acts in public assembly, the restriction of travel, the curtailing of the sale of goods, and the prescription of the hunt. In A.D. 585, the Council of Macon declared that all local businesses must be closed on the Lord's Day in observance of the practice of rest. In 9th century Ireland, rules were instituted listing in detail all the activities that were not allowed to happen on the day of rest, including writing, haircuts, bathing, baking, and house cleaning. These proscriptions concerning the practice of rest did not abate with the rise of the Reformation. Though for a brief time in England, Protestant churches specifically allowed and encouraged their congregants to work so as to rebel against the edict outlawing work on Sunday by the Roman Catholic Church. The rise of Puritanism once again meant that laws were created to delineate how rest was supposed to be practiced. The Westminster Confession of Faith reflects this in its instruction on the Sabbath. This is what the WCF says. This Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord. 
when men, after a dire preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe and holy rest all the day from their own works, words, and thoughts about the worldly employments and recreations, but also are taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. Up until fairly recently, even Canada had rules in place banning stores from being open on Sunday. This legalism, though originally well-intentioned, stemmed from an ordinance approach to rest. Christians practice rest because God commands it. Therefore, in order to ensure that God's ordinance is not violated, rules are created. Just as the Pharisees created layers upon layers of rules regarding the Sabbath, Christians also fell into that same pattern of legalism as they tried to protect and honor the ordinance to practice rest. In his book, Christ, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper, Recovering the Sacraments for Evangelical Worship, Leonard Vanderzee defines sacraments this way. Sacraments are material things that point beyond themselves to their creator. They are windows into divine reality. All of creation can have sacramental qualities, as the material world points to and gives hints to the mystery that is behind it. To think sacramentally is to understand that creation, created things, and physical practices like the Lord's Supper and Baptism point to something larger than themselves. The adoption and embrace of the language of sacrament is not antithetical to the evangelical tradition, as some evangelical churches have historically used the language of sacrament over and against the language of ordinance. There also appears to be an openness and willingness to explore and embrace the language of sacrament in the broader evangelical tradition today. And Hans Borsma suggests that this is because of the postmodern shift away from the age of rationalistic, desacralized modernity. To think sacramentally is to acknowledge that God's working in creation is mysterious and that humanity cannot fathom how sacraments work or trace the lines from physical element to spiritual power and action. Vanderzee describes a sacrament as a particular thing to which God attaches a promise like a rainbow. If sacraments are signs and seals that bind God's promises of his goodwill toward us in order to sustain the witness of our faith, and if they are a means in which God invisibly works in us, then rest can be seen as a sacramental practice. The physical practice of rest, in which Christians participate, points to the mystery behind the practical, that God created rest, not as a negation of work, but rather as the fulfillment of work. Just as God resting on the seventh day of creation was a sign that God was satisfied with his creation— so too the Christian practice of rest is a sign that we acknowledge that Christ's work was and is sufficient. God's salvific work of sending Jesus is more than sufficient. It is also good, and there is nothing that we as humans can do through working or striving to improve it. So let's look at a few passages of scripture that talk about rest. The first place to look is the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 because this is the place where we get the command to keep the Sabbath. Notice what it says in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, 
the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. It's important to note that these commandments, these Ten Commandments, are not about how Israel can save itself, but rather they are the ways that Israel can and should respond in light of God's gracious action, namely that he rescued them from Egypt. Indeed, look at the opening verse of Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All of the commandments that follow verses 1 and 2 are in light of God's work first. These commandments will not save them. They have been saved. They have been brought out of Egypt. And of course, in this command to Sabbath in Exodus, we see that Moses points the Israelites back to the creation story. Back to Genesis, God rested on the seventh day. Six days he created, and the seventh day he Sabbathed. Why does God rest? Joseph Pippa suggests three reasons why God rested on the seventh day. That God's day of rest signified that his work of creation was complete, and that it was exactly as he intended. That God's rest was a sign of God's delight, and that God was giving creation a picture of rest for his people to follow. We also have a theme of rest that floats throughout the Old Testament, and it's tied very closely to the physical land of Israel, to the promised land. Even in the practices of burial, it was important to lay an Israelite to rest in the promised land to await the renewal and redemption of the land. Rest and promised land go together. And the best place to see this connection between rest and the promised land is in Numbers 14, which is then picked up in Psalm 95 and then in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews. So let's turn to Psalm 95. The psalmist ties rest with God's frustration in Numbers 14 at the disobedience of Israel. They will not enter the promised land, it says in Numbers, and the psalmist says they will not enter God's rest. We also see this theme of rest and promised land in passages like Joshua 21, 44-45. God gave them rest when they entered the promised land. In 1 Kings 8:56, Solomon in his great benediction thanks God for the rest that he has given Israel. Indeed, God even calls Solomon a man of rest in 1 Chronicles 22.9 because of the peace that Israel will enjoy under his reign. Because rest is so intimately tied to the promised land, we can also talk about the eschatological dimension of rest that we will one day enjoy perfectly. And so there's this eschatological reality where the promised land is also that future hope of resurrection. As we turn to the New Testament, we also see quite a few passages on the practice and theology of rest. The Gospels record numerous examples of Jesus defying the Pharisees and healing on the Sabbath, sometimes even healing not only on the Sabbath, but healing in the synagogue on the Sabbath. 
And so you can see this in Mark 3, Luke 14, John 5, John 7, John 9. You can also see it in Luke 13. Most importantly, in his teaching on the Sabbath practices, Jesus declared himself to be Lord of the Sabbath, thus declaring himself equal to God the Father. Jesus also declared that he is the fulfillment and source of the Sabbath. In Matthew, we have, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This promise is first and foremost a present and physical promise of rest from the struggles and wearies of the world, and not just a vague promise of a spiritual rest that will occur sometime in the future. Jesus declared that he had come to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. And just as he fulfilled the covenant rituals of Passover and the feast by becoming the Passover sacrifice and the living water of the feast, so too he fulfilled the Sabbath by becoming the rest. So if we are thinking sacramentally, I would suggest that since Jesus himself is the source of rest for those who come to him, that means that the work of rest is entirely Christ's work. And the Christian's work or response is to accept Christ's rest as a free gift of grace. It should not be a work of obligation, but a work of thanksgiving and praise. In Hebrews 3, 12 through 4, 11, the author picks up the refrain from Numbers 14 and Psalm 95 and reads them in light of the work of Jesus. The author of Hebrews starts at the beginning, at the rest that God experienced on the seventh day of creation. God's rest transcends instructions to a specific people and is instead a part of the action and creative power of God himself. As the passage unfolds, the author weaves together Old Testament allusions to rest. Quoting directly from Psalm 95 and God's decree that the people shall never enter God's rest, the writer points the reader even further back in Scripture to Numbers 14, where God, frustrated at the disobedience of Israel, vows that they will never enter the promised land. While rest is not specifically mentioned in the original passage in Numbers, both the psalmist and the author of Hebrews understand rest and the promised land to be intricately connected concepts, and rest and entering the promised land are tied specifically to obedience and faithfulness. In Hebrews 4, the word rest appears nine times. This word, katapausis, is a general term and the most frequently used term for rest. The exegetical issue in this passage with regards to rest occurs in verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The Greek word, sabbatismos, is unique and is used nowhere else in the Bible. Plutarch, in the first century AD, used it as a way to describe Sabbath festivals. And Justin Martyr, in the second century AD, used it to refer to the observance of Sabbaths. But the rare uses outside of Scripture should not necessarily define how the author of Hebrews chose to use the term. Given the context, it would appear that the writer is trying to distinguish God's rest, sabbatismos, from rest, katapausis, in general. By using this term Sabbath, the writer is emphasizing not the Mosaic instruction to keep Sabbath, but the Sabbath rest that God participated in on the seventh day of creation. There is continuity to God's Sabbath rest in that it was not just a one-day occurrence back at the beginning of time and relegated to the past. Instead, the Sabbath rest of God is a permanent reality in the life of God. 
And because it is a permanent reality, the people of God can be assured of the promise of entering God's rest. The seventh day was not merely a day when God ceased working exhausted from his six days of creating. Instead, the Sabbath rest of God was a day of serenity and peace. In this way, the God of Israel was different from the ancient Babylonian gods. For the God of Genesis 1 and 2 is not anxious, but is at ease with his rule. In the Hebrews passage, not only is God at ease with his creation, but he invites the people of God to enter into and participate in his Sabbath rest. God's Sabbath rest does not mean a separation from his people. Instead, his invitation to his people to enter his rest lends itself to beginning to consider the idea of rest as a sacramental activity. We can summarize the biblical account of rest this way. The practice of rest, the visible action of spending time and ceasing to work, points to the promises found in Scripture. In God's instituting Sabbath at the creation of the nation of Israel, the practice of rest became a visible sign to remind the people that God had indeed delivered them from bondage in Egypt. Entering the promised land became a powerful promise and image of rest that God would would bestow on Israel, historically, soteriologically, and eschatologically. This rest was not an abstract, impersonal reality. Instead, it is God's rest, given by and owned entirely by God himself. In the passage from Hebrews, entering God's rest is a promise to those who remain faithful and obedient. It's also important to note as we think about this term sacrament and the idea of thinking about rest sacramentally is that sacraments have not only a vertical dimension, but also a horizontal dimension. To think about the sacraments is to not just think about me and God, but also about the relationship between Christians and their brothers and sisters in the faith, about Christians in community with one another. And so, if we think about rest sacramentally, we have to recognize that the practice of rest is not solely about reconnecting the believer with God, but also about the reconnection of the believer with other humans. The day of rest has built into it a chance not only for Christians to gather and worship, but also for families to spend time together in a way that does not happen during the busyness of the rest of the week. In the Old Testament, Sabbath days... Sabbath years and Sabbath feasts were communal practices, drawing the nation of Israel together to celebrate the goodness of God and to practice hospitality, to acknowledge and allow the land to lay fallow, and for debts and indentured persons to be forgiven. That rest is a work and grace of God can perhaps be best summed up by Martin Luther's reflection. He writes this, The spiritual rest which God especially intends is that we not only cease from our labor and trade, but much more, that we let God alone work in us, and that in all our powers do we do nothing of our own. If the Christian practice of rest is primarily a response to God's first work, namely his Sabbath rest, and if Christ is not only the Lord of the Sabbath, but the source of rest, then the Christian participates in the regular practice of rest as a way of responding to and giving thanks to God's work of grace. The language of sacrament helps to define and describe this mystery because Christian rest is not merely about following God's command to rest, but instead testifies to the bigger, mysterious picture of the universe, 
God delights in inviting his people to rest and does not seek to rest from his people. Seen in this light, instructions, rules, and tips on how to rest become properly oriented, and hopefully the legalistic tendencies that humans have to absolutize everything can be avoided. Indeed, if rest is seen as a sacrament, there opens up a freedom in how and when the Christian practices rest. As Canada and the United States becomes, become post-Christian nations, the reality is that Christian rules and traditions regarding holy days and holidays become less enforced. A sacramental understanding of rest allows the Christian to practice rest in a culture that thrives on busyness and activities being available 24-7. What matters is the Christological focus. Christ not only offers us rest, but as the high priest opens the way for us to enter the present and eschatological invitation to participate in God's Sabbath rest. There's a very special service in the Anglican tradition called Compline. It is a service that is said at the close of the day before bed. In some churches, Compline is sung, but it can also be a simple, quiet, spoken service. One of the prayers in that service says this, Be present, O merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night, so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of this life may rest in your eternal changelessness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. May you rest in the eternal changelessness of our triune God. Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts.